Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program, an initiative of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, where we help you live your faith in the public arena. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and joining me in studio, as always, is our producer and Minnesota Catholic Conference Communications Manager, Kit Sapiniak. Hey, Kit. Hey, everyone. Thanks for tuning in once again this week. We are so glad that you are listening and hoping that you're having a very blessed day. Remember to catch us every week right here on your favorite Catholic radio station, or you can catch up online. Go to mncatholic.org forward slash podcast, or you can find us on your favorite podcast app. Just make sure to hit subscribe, and then you won't miss any future conversations. In today's episode, we're talking about the right way to communicate with your bishop about your concerns. The Christian faithful have a right and a responsibility to make their opinions known to their bishop, but we live in a culture of criticism, polarization, and poisonous rhetoric. Social media has enabled people to openly and widely air their grievances about church issues. But did you know that canon law actually gives us some principles for how to correct our church leaders? And we have a great speaker with us today to share more about that and dive into the relevant principles and considerations. In our mailbag segment, we answer a question about church teaching and what it means to be in communion with the church. And of course, we want to leave you with some practical tips on how you can start to put your faith into action. In our Bricklayer segment, we have suggestions for forming your conscience as a faithful citizen this summer. And listeners, if you ever have an idea for that Bricklayer segment, or maybe you have a question for the mailbag about faith and politics, make sure to send those questions and ideas my way. Shoot me an email. The address is show at mncatholic.org. Or you could leave us a comment on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Just search for the Minnesota Catholic Conference. We're now joined on the line by Gregory Caridi. He is a civil and canon lawyer and is currently serving as chancellor of the Diocese of Dallas and previously as a judge for the tribunal of the Archdiocese of Galveston, Houston. Gregory studied civil law at South Texas College of Law in Houston and canon law at St. Paul University in Ottawa, Canada. Gregory recently wrote an article for the University of Notre Dame's Church Life Journal, which caught our attention. The article is entitled, How to Correct Bishops Correctly. We can tell you that staff here at Minnesota Catholic Conference received plenty of feedback and correction, which we're obliged to pass on to our bishops. So we're eager to talk to Mr. Caridi today. Gregory, it's great to speak with you. Welcome to the Bridge Builder Program. Thank you. It's good to be here. Let's take some of the mystery out of canon law. What does a canon lawyer do, and uh, why do we have canon law in the first place in the Church? If you think of the Church as almost like a government, canon law provides the guidelines by which the Church is run and addresses the rights of the Christian faithful, as well as clerics. But it's sort of like the bylaws for the whole institution of the Church, so that it runs properly. Any community needs norms, rules, regulations for its proper functioning. Law is not a product of the fall, but in fact a principle of order in any community. So it's only natural that we would have something as a true society in the Church called canon law. And it's really an important resource. So it's great that we have canon lawyers such as yourself working in that field and helping the Church maintain order so it can carry out its task of evangelization. What do you do as chancellor of a diocese in a big diocese like the Diocese of Dallas? Chancellors have an interesting position. It, it depends that diocese to diocese. Historically, they were just sort of the secretary for the bishop. He served as his notary, but it's expanded to be this sort of canonical advisor, or and in my case, the civil law advisor as well, to the bishop and making sure the acts of the diocese are done properly in line with law, civilly and canonical. 
we want to talk about your article, How to Correct Bishops Correctly. And there are some relevant principles and considerations, and we should sort of prescind from those uh, when it comes to airing one's uh, opinions about things going on in the church or uh, disagreements with bishops about very various matters. What are sort of the general 60,000-foot principles when thinking about how a member of the church, just a, a baptized person in the pew, makes his or her opinions known about questions and things going on in the church? This is difficult, I think, especially for Americans. The first place to start is that all of the Christian faithful are equal in their baptism. We're all members of the body of Christ. But in addition to that, certain people, clerics and bishops and the Pope, are in the hierarchical structure. So we're able to correct as brothers, but we're not able to correct our superiors. Superiors are only able to correct down. We can't correct up in certain ways. We can only correct as siblings in charity, but as far as justice is concerned, we can only correct down. That's the sort of general starting point. And so if we see our bishops as our fathers in our own family, a son is normally not going to ground his father. A son is normally not going to punish his father, but a son may say, Dad, you've done something wrong here. We think it should go another way. But the way you do that would always be in respect. So if you start from the sort of family view, you'll see what the Church is trying to do. Oh, that's a really excellent analogy. So there must be, a, in other words, there must be a principle of, thor- of authority in any community, and it's the bishops and the hierarchy and the clergy who are tasked with governance, whether that's a diocese or a parish, but we should view them as fathers. But it's, it's not the case that we have to keep our opinions to ourselves. So what are the responsibilities uh, and rights of the lay faithful with regard to sharing those opinions and perspectives with bishops? They have a right to share their opinions, and in a certain way they have a duty to share their opinions, but it is limited. The law limits it specifically to people who know what they're talking about to begin with. A lot of people have a lot of opinions, but they might not have all the facts. They might not be experts in a field. They might just be angry. And usually if you're just angry about something, you might not have the best or most helpful opinion. That doesn't mean you can't voice that opinion. If you do voice that opinion, you should do it respectfully. You should do it in the proper order. You shouldn't generally, unless you have to, go to the public as the first thing. You should start with Just a simple letter to the bishop, I'm not happy about this, but I don't know everything. I'm concerned that it might mean this. Bishops do like hearing that kind of stuff. But immediately going to public to rail against the bishops, to make jumps in logic that the bishops are trying to do X, Y, Z, even without evidence, just in a political way, is not permitted. Say a little bit about how we've gone off the rails in that regard, in the sense that we have not just lay faithful, but celebrity priests and all sorts of other folks who don't seem to be honoring uh, these relevant principles and considerations. Uh, is it is it that the authority that is present by nature of their office no longer respected? Is it a product of the culture? Because certainly it's not the case that right now in the Church people are observing these norms. In the United States, I think what's happened in the Church with the lay faithful is we've copied the secular form of speech. So we we presume we have a free speech right to say whatever we want, especially if we're mad about something, and we presume we can protest. We presume we can, if we want something a certain way, we gather together, we get other people who agree with us, we make a lot of noise, we get a lot of action toward the bishop so he sort of bends to our will. We do that with politicians, right? I mean, that's sort of how the political system in the United States works. And I think we've adopted that to the church system 
And if you see a lot of the groups that do this, you'll notice overlap with political sort of action groups. I understand it. I mean, that's the background. That's the sort of tradition we come from as Americans. But it is not what the church envisions. That's right. There is sort of a Tocquevillian civil society that when we see problems, we band together and then we try to try to resolve them. And then you have the problem of everyone, their own magisterium, which is what you alluded to earlier in terms of uh, people having certain competencies to say certain things and perhaps avoiding others. But another argument that we hear is that there's this argument of necessity to save the church, to save society, especially when the bishops are not acting in a way that we think is the right way or the right path. We have this sort of responsibility to speak truth to power, so to speak. How did that kind of infect Catholic thinking? That's true. If you have something true that's important that needs to be expressed to the bishops respectfully, you should do that. But the notion that the laity saves the Church separate from the hierarchy is fundamentally not Catholic. I mean, not to, not to be too harsh with that, but it, the Church is hierarchical. The, the, the apostles were established. The bishops are the successors of the apostles. That is the Church. The hierarchical structure is the Church and how we know it's the Church. It turns into something very different whenever we get away from that model. It turns into something a little more Protestant. And I think we have to be careful not to go too far with that, where we throw away bishops if we disagree, as if their consecration is only a sort of utilitarian thing, not an inherent authoritative value. One interesting dynamic for just playing devil's advocate is, well, the bishops are guilty of all sorts of malfeasance. They're sitting behind their desks and not being true pastors of souls. They're not speaking truth. They're engaged in all sorts of other problems, sex abuse, cover-up, et cetera, et cetera. And therefore, in this vacuum of authority, we have to step in or we can simply ignore the dictates or teachings of our bishops precisely because they've abused or abandoned their authority. How do we respond to that argument? It's it's a difficult point. I, I think you can recognize the fallibility, the sins of various clerics without throwing away the clergy and the hierarchy. And and I think resisting that temptation to throw away the hierarchy, even when you have really bad prelates, just to recognize. I, I mentioned in the article that it's there's a kind of a soft donatism, the donatist heresy of sinful clerics. They lose their authority. They lose their ability to create sacraments because of their sin. And that's that's not true, and it, it's sort of integral to our faith to recognize that that's not true. There's always going to be bad clerics, there's always going to be bad prelates, but our faith is the idea that grace somehow supernaturally goes to our prelates and ultimately guides them for the salvation of the world. That, that is our faith, and if you drop that because of acts of Judas, if you will, you've sort of dropped the faith. We're speaking with Gregory Caridi. He is a civil and canon lawyer, currently serving as chancellor for the Diocese of Dallas. He is an author of a recent article in Church Life Journal called How to Correct Bishops Correctly. Greg, is there a sense that maybe we need to recover an authentic sense of obedience? It's such a challenging concept in, a, in an individualistic culture, but is there a sense that we need to say there's a right obedience and then there's a wrong sort of positivistic obedience, but we still need to recognize that obedience can be a virtue and is an important principle in a well-ordered community? I don't want to say it started with Pope Francis in the sense that people's response to Pope Francis tend to be really extreme. They will 
assume the absolute worst of him or they will assume in other words conservatives will assume what liberals are seem to be trying to push when that's not actually what's going on i think just the basic element of obedience is to give the prelate the benefit of the doubt to the point that you assume he is trying to do something catholic he is trying to uphold the faith evangelize the world not that he has a nefarious purpose that is the starting point of obedience right the starting point of obedience even to your own father would be he is doing something not out to harm me and i think that's renewing that, recapturing that, going back to that point of we have our prelates, they're not out to get us, they're not out for nefarious purposes. What are they trying to do? What is this teaching trying to say in line with the magisteria? We have to have a presumption of goodwill. I think that's incredibly yeah. presu- incredibly well said, so thank you for that. And just in terms of you know the realm in which the Minnesota Catholic Conference op- operates, we're the Conference of Bishops ourselves. Um, we get a lot of feedback, and we're grateful for that about various things. But the bishops are rightful teachers, even on matters of prudential judgment or public policy, because they have uh, the care of all souls in their diocese, not just Catholics, but also because they're pastors and evangelists. But tell, just share a little bit about the extent in which canon law envisions the teaching authority of the bishop with regards to political questions. This is probably one of the most controversial areas of their teaching authority. I've heard people say things like the bishops don't have a particular charism to politics, but I think that's the, the wrong view of what politics is. Politics is ultimately just an application of moral principles to the common good, right? That's what politics is. So obviously bishops would have something to say, at least about what the common good is, at least about what those underlying moral principles are, so that they might be applied. So while they're not politicians, while they don't necessarily, they do this sometimes, they don't necessarily approve specific policies or particular laws, because they don't, they're not experts, they're not necessarily lawyers themselves or lawmakers in the civil context, but they can provide the general principles and they can point out when something is immoral, when something is contrary to the common good, when something is explicitly condemned by the Church. And they do that all the time, and that's certainly within their teaching authority. So sometimes, of course, in very select uh, issues, such as we deal with here in Minnesota, or which the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops deals with in Washington, we do speak to the uh, rightness or wrongness of specific public policies, and that's certainly within the realm of the teaching authority of the bishop, but there's a lot of pushback. Those are not infallible pronouncements by any means, but sometimes there are corrections and criticisms. What's the what's the right way for the lay faithful to approach that when they do find something with which they disagree that the bishops are doing from a very practical standpoint in the public arena? I think they should approach it insofar as humanly possible as an American in the political world as apolitical approach it as the bishop is making a statement about morals. The bishops are making a statement about why this is generally against XYZ. The bishops are not lobbying for a particular party or for a particular candidate. And I think if you start from what moral principle is the bishop trying to express here, then you can stop and say, oh, I don't need to condemn them for supporting X or, or for being against Y and when X and Y are people. There are parties. They're just trying to express this moral principle to help the faithful live properly to support the common good. 
if you start there, you get a little less angry, I think. What after, you know, careful consideration, reflection, the relevant deference that people do owe the bishops, even on uh, matters of prudential political questions, one still finds oneself in disagreement and in feeling very, very convicted about it. What's the right steps for a person to make their opinion known in that situation? I think the first would be to um, express it to the bishop himself. And, and you do it by writing. You could do it. Um, but but directly and privately. And only when you really legitimately are convicted and you know, like you have a particular expertise and you think it will serve the common good, would you speak about something publicly? In the, in the sense where you'd, you'd raise it publicly to the rest of the Christian faithful so they can express their concern as well. But you start with the private and direct, as you would with your own father, again, you would not you would not go to the rest of the family or to the public to shame your father. You would start by speaking to him if you felt he did something incorrectly or you felt he was off. And then if you really legitimately thought this is way, way wrong, you would go to others. But respectfully still as your father. Social media, the internet, uh, the interwebs as we jokingly call them, all sorts of media platforms today may are useful tools for the Christian faithful to exchange ideas, views, and principles, even comment on matters of the Church. What, what are some of the rules and, and principles that people should think about and operate on when they are legitimately trying to exchange views with others about some of these controversial questions, learn more, uh, be educated. Uh, what what norms should they abide by when they're trying to explain something that they think is the right thing to do? And what norms should they abide by when going to various news sources or blogs or other resources that comment on matters related to the Church? So it's more practical. I think the first thing they should do is to start with that good faith assumption when they're discussing these issues, but they should steer away from themselves doing it or from others people who are committing what I would consider delicts or, or crimes in the Church, which is those who are trying to create animosity toward a decision of a bishop, not trying to create discussion, not trying to create thoughtful, what is the bishop trying to say here, but, but real animosity or hatred to the bishop so that the faithful are disobedient to him, so that the faithful rally against him. Any Anytime someone's doing that, should stop. And anytime someone else is doing that, the faithful should probably avoid that as much as possible, which might be hard on the internet, but should try. Gregory, we have one final question, and I want to explore that because I think our listeners might find it interesting, is they're not just, things are not just sinful, but in terms of canon law and the, the governance of the Church, there are things that are criminal delicts, as you call them. Where can people go to learn more about uh, the actual criminal sanctions from a canonical perspective in Church life? Um, well, my article does it, but the particular canons enforced now, because you know book, book, um, book 6 was just updated. Book 6 is penal sanctions in the Church. Mm-hmm. Uh, the, the old, the current canon 1369 and 1373 would address this really directly. The future, 1368 and 1373, those come into effect on December 8th. And in addition to that, there's a new canon under in, in the new code, 1365. The new 1365 provides particular punishments for people who 
refuse to submit to a church teaching of a current pope or of the bishops. And I don't know if that one will be utilized. I don't know. But those those canons will provide the sort of the sort of background by which to address this. Well, in a, an ecclesial culture of a lot of noise right now, um, it'd be useful for people to go back and take a look at Book 6 and then some of the canons that you've mentioned specifically. Gregory Creedy, it's been a blessing to have you on the Bridge Builder program. I'd really recommend to our listeners his article in Church Life Journal, How to Correct Bishops Correctly. We appreciate the way in which you've unpacked some challenging and difficult concepts for us today on the Bridge Builder program. Grateful for your work in the Diocese of Dallas, and, and God bless you. Thank you. And we'll be back in a moment with our mailbag segment. Welcome back to The Bridge Builder, where we help you connect your Catholic faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins, Executive Director of the Minnesota Catholic Conference, and now it's time to jump into the mailbag. Kit, what's in this week's mailbag? Yes, so everyone undoubtedly has been very aware of all the all the media attention, both Catholic and secular, around the discussion and debate of communion and Catholic politicians. And it seems most of the time the headlines, especially secular media, are either just flat out getting it wrong or they're really just scratching the surface of a really big issue. And shortly after the U.S. Conference of Catholic Bishops met in June, there was a statement of principles, a letter that was released from 60 Democratic U.S. representatives, 60 Democratic Catholic U.S. representatives, urging them to not be denied the sacrament of Holy Communion over the issue of abortion. Now, this is no small issue, and we have received correspondence from Catholics really on both sides saying this is weaponization of the Eucharist and others who feel excommunication is the only remedy. Jason, this is a huge issue, but could you help us understand a bit more about what's going on here? Well, speaking, following up on our interview with Gregory Creedy a moment ago about difficult issues in which the lay faithful are making their opinions known, we've certainly heard feedback and opinions and perspectives shared with us here, and we've certainly passed those on to our bishops, and, and undoubtedly this is happening in other parts of the country. I think it's important to recognize what is being done and what isn't being done, what is being said and what is not being said. So what the bishops agreed to do at their June meeting is to draft a document on the topic of what it means to receive communion worthily or what they call Eucharistic coherence, what it means to live as the body of Christ and how the Eucharist in some sense makes the church and the church makes the Eucharist. So uh, part of that is to help people receive worthily, but to recognize the beauty and dignity of the sacrament and the way it transforms us and is meant to transform our community and, of course, the broader world. We believe the sacraments are efficacious and that they truly make our, our Christ present uh, in the world. And so that's what was agreed to, is it to draft a document. Uh, we haven't seen the text of that document. We have no idea what it says, and we have no idea what the bishops will end up agreeing to. So a lot of this right now is merely speculation. But what, what principles can we think about with regard to these sorts of questions. It's really how does the community define itself? And that's when I said the Eucharist makes the church. That's true. We are a communion, a sharing of gifts. Any organization, any community has boundaries of what it considers acceptable behavior and what considers consistent with its principles. Um, you can't join any organization you want, for example. You wouldn't allow a white supremacist to join the NAACP, for example. They could kick them out. 
a communist party organization wouldn't allow uh, bankers or capitalists to be a part of it. Uh, the Cub Scouts uh, wouldn't allow, well, I shouldn't use the Cub Scouts and the Girl Scouts anymore because that's a little more fluid these days. But, you know, look, any organization has a right to define who its members are and what constitutes acceptable and unacceptable behavior, putting oneself outside of that communion of people. There's a right for an organization to define its boundaries, and it's certainly legitimate for the church to define its Eucharistic boundaries of what constitutes appropriate table fellowship. And when someone has excused themselves for because of their own actions or words from that table fellowship, and we should keep that in mind, is that people already excommunicate themselves from the church because of their actions in certain circumstances. They exclude themselves from that Eucharistic or table fellowship. The question then becomes, though, what happens when they don't do that, and what are the reasons for bishops uh, or people in rightful authority to actively exclude people from that table fellowship? And that's what is being debated in many ways. Is, uh, is it the case that a politician who supports evils or moral actions that are objectively evil, can they still be a part of that table fellowship, or are there affirmative steps that need to be taken in some instances, even beyond issues such as abortion, for when a politician excludes him or herself from that table fellowship or that Eucharistic table? So these are important questions, but it's perfectly legitimate for the Church to think about them. There are certain actions that we know simply by canon law or through a, because of uh, the tradition of the Church excludes oneself from that Eucharistic fellowship. Even when we think about the Mass, we have the Mass of the Catechumens, and then we have the portion where we confect and share the Eucharist. So we have two parts to the Mass, and traditionally in Church teaching, the Catechumens would then be excused from the Eucharistic fellowship before they were in, quote, full communion with the Church. So this is a natural, historic uh, dynamic in church life. It's the natural dynamic in any organization or any community or any body that there are certainly some things that put oneself outside of that fellowship. The question is, what are those, and when is it appropriate for those in authority to uh, impose those sanctions, not to punish, but for medicinal purposes? We exclude not to punish people or exclude them, but so that they may reform and repent and then rejoin that table fellowship. And that's the whole purpose of canonical penalties, um, is not simply to punish and exclude, but to be medicinal. That's another thing to keep in mind. Wonderful. Thanks, Jason. Definitely a very deep issue that we know we'll continue to hear a lot about. But before we wrap up this week's episode, we want to leave listeners with some practical things they could start doing this summer to start building the bridge between faith and public life. What can they do for this week's bricklayer? Well, we like to say advocacy never sleeps, but summer can be a quieter time at the Capitol and in our homes. It should be a moment of reflect, reflection, relaxation, especially here in Minnesota, where we live the other nine months to get to the three months of summer and really enjoy those. So we want to encourage our listeners to take the summer as a respite from your usual news coverage of politics, uh, some of the advocacy work, and instead take a break, pick up some great summer reading that will help you form your consciences as faithful citizens. Now, our podcasts are a great way to do that. Easy summer listening, uh, some challenging topics for sure, but really informative and engaging. But you can go through our podcast archive. You'll hear from some authors of some really great books that we've been covering over the years. I just want to highlight a few of those. Live Not by Lies by Rod Dreher. What It Means to Be Human, The Case Through the Body in Public Bioethics by Carter Sneed, one of Wall Street Journal's 10 Best Books of the Year. One of our, my favorite interviews that we did was Gracie Olmsted. She wrote a book called Uprooted, a fascinating book 
about woke capitalism, From Tolerance to Equality by Daryl Paul. And then finally, we're blessed to have on the program Tom Holland, BBC producer and commentator. His book, Dominion, written from the perspective of thinking about what separates us from the ancients. How did we go from a more brutal society in the ancient world to a fundamentally more tolerant and humane one? And he answers that that is Christianity. So Dominion by Tom Holland, another fascinating read. We'd also like to hear from all of you. What are the great books or articles you are reading that can help others become better faithful citizens? And we did, as we did today with our interview of Gregory Caridi, we saw this article that he wrote in Church Life Journal. It's another great resource and uh, decided to cover it. But what are you reading? What are you seeing? What are you hearing? Share your suggestions in the podcast comments or on our social media channels. We'll post a list of summer reading suggestions in the show notes of this podcast. Just go to mncatholic.org podcast to check it out. That's all the time we have for today. For everyone listening on your podcast app, make sure to follow or subscribe so that you always know when a new episode comes out. Then leave us a five-star rating and click share so that more Catholics can begin to build the bridge between faith and public life. Remember to catch up on our past episodes on our website, mncatholic.org podcast. Thanks for tuning in today to The Bridge Builder. We'll be back again next week with another great guest, more of your comments and questions, and a new way for you to build bridges between faith and public life. I'm Jason Adkins of Rakitsapiniak of the Minnesota Catholic Conference. Thanks for listening, and have a blessed day.